And we're going to be in the book of Jude today. So you ready? We're going to do a whole book today. Ready? A whole book. So we are going to be in the book of Jude. So, and then when I get back, uh, we'll continue back in Matthew. And so if everyone's got their Bibles, please open it up to Jude. As we do that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we get ready to study your word, Lord, I just pray your Holy Spirit would speak to us. As we look at this letter from your brother, Lord, that these words would speak something into our lives, Lord, that we could use to understand more and more about you. So, Lord, I thank you. I love you, Lord. And I just ask for your Holy Spirit's presence in this. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, Jude is interesting. I want to start with a statement. I think some some of your Bibles might say Judas. Depends on what Bible you have. Or Jude. May, is anyone's Bible say Judas? Sometimes it says Judas. I think in the Myanmar version, it does. In some of the other versions, it says Judas. So I want to be clear who this person is as we start. This is not, this is Judas or Jude, but it is actually the brother of Jesus. It's not Judas Iscariot. I don't know why someone would maybe think that, but I want to, this is actually Jesus's half brother. And so hold your finger right there in Jude and just turn back to Mark chapter 6, verse 3. And we can look at this to understand about this just for a second. So Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Then they scoffed. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And his sisters live there right there among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. So through that passage, we learn that Jesus had a pretty big family, right? And one of his brother's name was Jude, Judas, actually. And also what we learned through that passage, if you look at that, we start to learn that his own family, as Jesus begun his ministry, did not believe in him. And I think that's important to know as we study this book, as we get into the scriptures today, to understand that through that entire three years of Jesus' ministry, his brothers, were, they mocked him, they didn't believe him. And we can see more of that. Let's just to turn back, keep your finger in Jude still, but we're going to just look at John chapter 7. Just a reminder, a little context on it. John chapter 7, verse 5. For even his brothers did not believe in him. So today, as we study this and we see this letter from Judas or Jude, we can understand that this is one of Jesus' brothers because there are some religions that teach differently. Jesus had a family. He had brothers and sisters. So just make that clear. It's in the Bible. It's very clear. But also what's interesting is we read this, remember that Jesus didn't have his family support. None of them believed. I mean, maybe I believe probably his parents, I mean, obviously did. But his brothers and sisters did not believe that he was the Messiah. And so you can see there's many other scriptures and references where they actually mocked him. They told him to go out. And John, it tells, they said, why don't you go out to the festival? Make yourself known. Make yourself famous. And they were mocking him, actually. So they didn't believe. Now, obviously, Jude now is written much later, right? Now, th- at this time, obviously, he came to believe after the resurrection. So now this is much later within the church, and Jude has written this letter, a warning to all of us. So let's start with reading and verses 1 and 2. This letter from Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, I am writing to you all who have been called by God the Father, who loves you and keeps you safe in the care of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more mercy, peace, and love. 
Now, as we get going here, where's Jade? Jade? Make sure and give me the sign, right? Remember we talked about the sign? All right. If I start talking too fast, we have a secret code now. To, she's going to give me the sign in the back to slow down because I can get talking too fast and make it hard for some people to understand. And you don't know it when you're teaching, usually when you do it. So coming up with some... But if you see someone doing the wave in the back, it's not the wave. It's for me to slow down. All right. So we can see here Jude introduces himself, right? Do you see how he introduces himself? In some versions, say bondservant. In this version, it says as a slave, right? So we know a slave or a bondservant in Jesus' time is it's one that would give themselves up to another person's will. Is the way you could define that. Um, one whose service is used by Christ and used for that other person's purposes. This is done freely. We know that. Bondservant is freely done. There's a slave and there's a bondservant. This is speaking really of a bondservant, one that is freely given themselves to service to another, and in this case, Jesus Christ. It's one that's devoted themselves to another person, in this case, Jesus. It's disregarding another person's will, your own will to serve another, to serve the other person's interests, not your own. This is how Judas was introducing himself, Right? Is a bondservant or a slave to Jesus Christ. Now think about this. I, even in today's society, if you were the brother of Jesus, I mean, you wanted to get someone's attention, in, like writing a letter or speaking to someone, that's, that's pretty weighty. That's, I mean, you could say, hey, I know what I'm talking about. I'm the brother of Jesus. I grew up with him. You know, I mean, he, he could have said it that way, couldn't he have? Instead, he starts as he doesn't even mention that he was the brother of Jesus. He just starts very simply by introducing himself as a bondservant or slave of Jesus Christ. It's amazing to me as I see that introduction that he gives. And it raised a question in my own mind. You know, his, you see his identity right here, really. You see his identity is as a bondservant or slave of Jesus Christ. So if we see his identity, the very brother of Jesus Christ, who, how is our identity formed? Who are we? How do we identify ourselves? Is this is how, would you introduce yourself this way? Or do we go, hello, I'm, I mean, I know culturally it's not something you'd usually do, hi, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. But I think in our minds, that's who we should be. And instead of going up, hello, I'm Reverend, Doctor, so-and-so, right? In our minds, the humility and knowing who we are in our identity is who we are. I think it's important. And we learned this from Jude right away. Because this guy, I mean, the brother of Jesus. He just says, I'm a slave to Jesus. That was how he introduces his letter. And I also thought about that as the people around us. How do they view you? How do they view your identity? I mean, a lot of times for me, you know how they view me? Oh, that's Jocelyn's dad. Or that's Aaron's dad. Or, you know, how we get viewed, you know. A lot of it is that you become parents. You become uh, labeled to your kids. Or maybe, oh, that's the pastor. Or maybe, for Wawa, well, well, that's the teacher. Right? Or the grandpa. But really, our identity should be just as Jude shows us just to start, is just as simple as a slave of Jesus Christ. So what do people see that know us well? What do they identify us with? What about people that don't know us very well? Maybe they're just meeting us, and they're just getting to know us. After they meet us for even an hour or two, what is what do they see you and identify you with? Do they identify you as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus? Or do they identify you as some other way? 
So it's a great question to ask ourselves. And I think, I mean, it's just so, just the first half verse, we can learn so much just from that right there. We can see that Judas' identity is, and as it should be, is a servant to Jesus Christ. So look back at that verses. We're going to go through these. And do you see that who the letter is to? Who's that letter to? It says all that are called, or you could say born again. So if you've answered the call, you've been born again, guess what? This letter is written to you. It's written to all of us here. All that have accepted Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, this letter is to us, just as much as it was to the first century Christians. Now, also, keep looking at them verses. Do you see where it says, who loves you? Look in there. Who loves you? You see it? It says, because he starts right just in the introduction that we are loved or set apart or sanctified because each one of us, we have a special purpose and a special work to do. And we see that right off the gate, right in this letter. And look again. Do you see also it continues and it says, keeps you safe in the care? There's just so much here right there. I mean, just this first verse. What does it mean to be kept safe in Jesus? Jesus is our protector. We are preserved by him to do his work. And we learn that, I mean, just right there in that first verse, just so much. Do you believe that when you go out that Jesus is your protector and he's watching over you? He's watching each and every step that you take and to walk into that? You know, these are the truths I was talking about last week that we need to stand on. I was talking about last week. It's these truths. When we use our brain and we use that wisdom that we get from God's word, that when we face difficult trials, like Miss Ruth is facing, that we can stand in God's word and realize that Jesus is our protector and he's there for us, watching over us. No matter what's going on in our lives and how horrible it may seem, we can rest in these truths that we learn. And this is so important because we're going to face trials. We're going to face hard times. And we can rest and know that it is here. It is who loves you and keeps you safe in the care of Jesus Christ. Just try to absorb that and just walk in that. I mean, it's just amazing to me. Jesus is here with us through it all, loving us and protecting us no matter what we're going through, good and bad. Now look at verse 2. You see Jesus, you see Judas, Jude, his heart in writing the letter. It's important, right? You want, when someone writes something to you or is discussing something with you, it depends what their intentions are or what their motives are, and you're going to see his heart here. What do you see? What is his heart in writing this letter? Do you see the word mercy? It's in there. Mercy is compassion for the guilty. Not getting what you deserve. So he has mercy. We see soul or peace in there. This is a security, a safety. It's a a state of our soul that's assured of... This peace is a state of our soul that's assured of our salvation. That's peace. He's talking about that here. What else do you see? You see love. So we're seeing, again, this is all the things he's talking about. A brotherly love, an affection, goodwill. It's just love. But it's more than that, isn't that? What do you see there? He continues. He says, more and more. More and more. What's that mean? It wasn't enough that he just wanted us to have mercy, peace, and love. I mean, to have all that. But he wants us to have more and more. He wasn't looking for addition. He was looking for multiplication in our lives. To have that. He wanted this mercy, peace, and love to be added to the life of us as Christians. As he's writing this letter. That was his intention. So we see this. We see his intentions now. We understand his heart in writing this letter to us. And what what he wanted for each one of us. So as we look at this, remember that. Because I can tell you, he's going to get into some pretty serious matters. Now, so we know that he wrote this out of love. And the reason he's writing now, as we see, is it's 
There's false teachings out there. There's some bad doctrine out there. There's some people preaching different gospels out there. There's people that are not teaching the true gospel. And then he's going to combat this in this letter, in a very short letter. So as, as we see this, and he starts to address to us and to the Christians of his time and throughout um, the last 2,000 years, remember again this lesson that we see is how he's addressing us with love, mercy, and peace. We see his heart in addressing this. And right there we learn another lesson. So we see something wrong, say, in someone's life. Jude's seen something wrong within the church, within some teachings, right? And he addresses it with love, with mercy, and his peace. His intention is to correct what's wrong, but it's, it's just, it's out of love. So that also, right there's a lesson. When we see something, and we see that there's correction or rebuke needed, this is going to be a rebuke. Are we doing that with that same heart that Jude has? Because if we're not, we shouldn't be doing it. I mean, so many times... I tell you, I'm, when I see something, I'm like, wow, that guy's doing this and this and that. I, I am in no place to be talking to that person about that. Because if I was to rebuke them or talk to them about that, it wouldn't necessarily be truly out of love. And with my hopes that that person would have more and more mercy, peace, and love. And if that is not my heart in talking to someone in a rebuke, I probably should let someone else do that. And so that's a great, just so many little lessons as we begin this. So, is everyone's ears, hearts, are you ready to hear the rebuke? Are you ready to hear the lesson that Jude has for each one of us? We know his intentions. We know his heart in writing this. So you're ready. Cause it's, okay. So let's look at verses 3 and 4. Dear friends, I have been eagerly planning to write you about the salvation we all share. But now I find I must write you about something else. Urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his holy people. I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago, for they have denied our our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. What there? So we see, we know Jesus. Jude is someone who really cares for people, but I think it was more than care. I think this is a burden on his heart. He had a burden for the people. He had a burden for the gospel. I think we should all have that same similar burden when we see a false teachings coming into the, into the church. And I don't mean just this fellowship. I mean anywhere in, inside of the church, the church as a whole. So he's deeply burdened for these people as they were being attacked from within their own church, within their own fellowship. And so now he's heard or seen something that has caused him to write this letter to address this problem. And he's pleading with them. He's begging them to take a stand in this, to rid the church of this cancer from within its own walls, or in this case, wherever it was in the church. Because if he, Jude knew if they didn't rid this cancer, this false teaching, the church, that it would die because it wasn't the true gospel. They need, we and them, we need to defend God's word. And Jude is talking, this is time. It's time to take a stand in this matter. They need to hold true to the biblical teachings that we have. And we needed to fight for the faith and the truth that we have. And again, Judas' intent was, his intent here in love was to defend the faith, to defend the good news, defend the gospel, and defend the truth of who Jesus Christ is and is not. So then, as we read that and start to get into that, the question is always for us. We have to ask ourselves, are we, are you willing to take a stand in your own church and in your own families, in your own communities to defend the faith, to defend the gospel, to defend 
against false teachings. Do you know that God, we are God's holy people, and he's entrusted each and every one of us to defend his word? Now, we see the example from Jude how to do that in love and mercy and peace, but it is our responsibility to do that, to defend the gospel against false teaching. Now, I, I'll give a few kind of simple examples. Just some of you are like, wow, that seems awfully big, right? I mean, but we can do this so simply. I'll just go through a few examples how we can stand for our faith. You can, you can just simply stand by your faith like we heard a short testimony today by just standing up and being a witness and sharing the testimony of who Jesus Christ is. That alone, just standing for your faith and, saying, and pronouncing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that's standing for your faith. Just share loudly. Or even if you were to go and distribute tracts or give out Bibles, that's standing for your faith. Um, it can be done by strengthening another believer or walking with another believer and standing alongside them. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, they deal with difficult times. And sometimes, you know, you need to help and hold their arm up. That's defending your faith. We also defend our faith to not be compromised, to not have uncompromising Christian lives to make sure that we never are in that position. And also, we always need to give credit to the Lord for all that he's done and how he's, like we have the praise reports. That's standing for your faith. We're saying it's God who's doing this. We're giving praise to the answered prayers. This is just a few ways. I didn't get into all the doctrine, all this and that, you know, about this and that. We can start with some basics. Is really sharing our testimony with uh, giving Bibles out, giving tracts out, living a righteous life, not to be compromised. So that's some ways we can stand for our faith in Jesus and to be the outward example of what a Christian should look like. Um, as we continue, we see that Jude is warning us. He's warning us right here in these scriptures that some people will come into the church. It's like a Trojan horse, right? They come in like secretly. You think they're great, but they start spreading rumors and lies and different things. And I tell you, it's, it's happened in these walls. Um, it's happened, I've seen it happen many other times. Um, people teaching different gospels. And they sneak in. And you don't always know their true intentions are really lies. But we don't always know that. And he's warning us here that, you know, sometimes we can see these false teachers for who they are. You know, some of them, they're, they're really, I'm really glad because they put badges on themselves. And it says, Elder. The Mormons, I like it. They actually give us a badge so we can tell who they are so we don't have to be deceived. We actually know who they are. But most of the time, they don't have a badge. Uh, the Mormons give us a badge so we can tell right away. But most of the time, they don't have a badge. So we got to know God's word so we can know when these false teachings are coming. Because Judah's warning us, our church is being invaded by false teachers. They're, in this case, they're preaching that you can go on sinning. In this particular instance, he's talking about a, a gospel or a, a teaching that you could continue to sin because Jesus' grace would cover it. That's the specific thing that Jude is talking about here. Now, we should be able to recognize teachings like this that are false, right? We should be able to see and hear that and go, that's not what the Bible says. That, in fact, the Bible says we are to live a holy life before God and our fellow man. That's what the Bible says. We should have that discernment concerning these false teachings. You know, and we get a lot of that from attending Bible studies, from being in God's Word daily, from attending uh, church on Sunday. And we learn the truths of God so we can discern when these false teachings come in. Now, as we see this teaching here, you can see that these people that are preaching this false teaching, that the grace would allow you to live an immoral life, 
you see that actually the truth is the people that are preaching this and living this kind of lifestyle, they will face an eternity in hell if there's no repentance. The scriptures say this right here. It's kind of a tough truth, but to live that life, it's not, it's not scriptural. So let's turn, and just to confirm that for you, just turn back a few pages to 1 John. It's like two pages maybe. 1 John 3, 8. So we can look at that. So everyone knows this is clear. Through 8 through 10, and this is how you can know. 1 John 3, 8 through 10. But when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil, who has been sinning since the beginning. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them. So they can't keep on sinning because they are children of God. So now we can tell who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Anyone who does not live righteously and does not love other believers does not belong to God. It's a pretty strong rebuke, isn't it? Very strong. But it's very clear. If a person is living a life of sin, according to this passage, they are not saved. Some people, they it's tough to hear sometimes, but it's very clear. You cannot continue a life of sin and just say grace has it covered. That is not the gospel. Now, this doesn't mean, be clear, this doesn't mean that we don't struggle with sin, right? It doesn't mean that we each and every one of us sin, I'm pretty sure, well, for me, daily, I'm sure of that. Um, But as a follower of Jesus, there is victory over sin and there's repentance over sin. It's not acceptance of of sin in one's life. There should never be acceptance of sin. There should be repentance, and there should be restoration and freedom from sin. And that's what's promised through Jesus Christ in the resurrection. Um, let's, let's look at that. Romans, this is important because I think a lot of people struggle with sin, and they don't see the difference between struggling with sin and living a life of sin. There's a, there's a very big difference. So in Romans chapter 7, verse This is one of my favorite verses, verses 24 through 25. I'm going to go to 23, actually. 723, Romans. But there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from the life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see, how is it? In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. So the answer is in Jesus Christ and that Holy Spirit living in us that we can have victory over sin, and we can have victory over sin. Um, we're promised that. So let's look back at the scriptures if you and back to Jude, and we're going to look at verses five through seven. Jude chapter, Jude chapter, verse five. I'm like there's no chapter. So I want to remind you, though you already know these things, that Jesus first rescued the nation of Israel from Egypt, but later he destroyed those who did not remain faithful. And I remind you of the angels who did not stay within the limits of the authority God gave them, but left the place where they belonged. God has kept them securely chained in the prisons of darkness, waiting for the great day of judgment. And don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns, which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion, Those cities were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. Wow, huh? You see that? I mean, it's pretty 
pretty straightforward, pretty serious. This is when we got to go back and remember the intentions and the reason in Jude's heart as he writes this to us. Remember that as we look through this. So we see three examples in the scriptures that we just read. You see the three examples of poor behavior? The first one, you start with the history of Israel. You see that? Being freed for Egypt from Egypt. And then you see the judgment on the people that did not remain faithful to God. Then you see the analogy of the rebellious angels. Here's a second reminder of the judgment. We see the angels are also subject to God. And we see that we serve a, also in this, you see that we serve a just God. And that even the angels are held accountable for their actions. Then we see the analogy of Sodom and Gomorrah in there. Uh, this is the third warning right here. And it's like, if you didn't get it the first two times, he's like, he keeps giving these repeated examples, these repeated warnings that God has called his people to be righteous and holy. And he sees here not just people, but he actually holds entire cities accountable for their sins. Nobody can, ex- it's very clear here, and it's, nobody can escape the penalty of sin. The only saving thing we have is coming before Jesus Christ and to repent of our sins. So, I mean, you read this, and it's pretty deep. It's pretty severe. So how, how do you take teachings like this and apply it to your daily lives right now? I mean, you read this, you read our Bibles, and you see that there's these warnings, there's these... It's like, it's pretty serious. But what do you get out of that? The, the truth is that we need to take time and meditate on scriptures like this to remind us each how serious sin is. You know, sometimes it gets a little nonchalant. We're like, you know, I'm saved, right? I'm saved. Sin is serious. We do not... We need to run away very fast from anything like this. We need to... If we see sin in our lives, we need to cry out in repentance. This is Jude's heart. It's repentance and restoration. So let's continue in verses 8 through 10. In the same way, these people who claim authority from their dreams live immoral lives, defy authority, and scoff as supernatural beings. But even Michael, one of the mightiest of the angels, did not dare accuse the devil of blasphemy. But simply said, the Lord rebuke you. This took place when Michael was arguing with the devil about Moses' body. Interesting, huh? How far are we going? 10. Verse 10. But these people scoff of things they do not understand. Like unthinking animals, they do whatever their instincts tell them. And so bring about their own destruction. Wow. Again, this is a reminder of what defines our what defines sin? What is right and wrong? It's God. It's God who defines these things. God is the ultimate authority we see through these passages. We are not the ones that determine what is right and wrong or what is sin. It's God who has the authority. And we need to understand that, that we are not the ones that determine that. Uh, we see here Michael the angel. Even He understood his place in God's design. Do you see that? He understood that he didn't, couldn't even pronounce a sentence of condemnation, that that was only under God's authority. God, that was only God's place to do that, to have that. over The angel didn't even have the authority to do that. He, it was only God that could say, the Lord, he says, the Lord rebuke you. It wasn't the angel's job. So even the mightiest angel that we know of knew his place and his role under God. So we see that it's, it's God's job to judge. It's not our job. And we must do, each of us, the different jobs and different purposes purposes that God has led us. 
But we also need to remember here, we see this, God's authority and let God do his job. And remember what it is. So as you see these verses, and you can go through them, we're, we're going to see some characteristics of false teachers. So the, one of the characteristics, if you're wondering if someone, if the teaching is bad or the preaching is bad, you can see one of the things is, is they, these false teachers will claim their authority from somewhere else than God. And you see it through all these different cults. You can ask them, where do you get, you know, it's this prophet or this place or that place. If they, their authority, they say their authority is somewhere else than God, they're a false teacher. These false teachers, they don't understand, or maybe they just blatantly disregard God's word and the commandments of the Bible. And they even mock it at times. You can see many of them, their actions are of self to satisfy self for personal gain. Doing whatever pleases themselves, usually at other people's expense. God knows who these false teachers are. And, you know, that's between them and God many times. So we got to remember that. We do serve a just God, and in time, these things will be reconciled. But it's not always our job to go out there and take care of that, although we are to stand for our faith. So look at verse 11. What sorrow awaits them, for they follow the footsteps of Cain, who killed his brother, like Balaam, Balaam sorry, they deceive people for money, and like Korah, they will be, perish in their rebellion. Three more examples. You see it? Three examples. Look at that. You see... Cain, who murdered his brother out of jealousy. You see Balaam, who prophesied out of greed, not out of obedience to God. Korah, who rebelled against God's divinity, um, wanting power for himself. So these different stories, they illustrate types of false teachers. You see pride, selfishness, jealousy, greed, lust, uh, lust for power, disregard for God's will. After I read all these and see, and I know these stories, I'm sure you know these stories too. We're not going to get into all three of these stories, but most of you know these stories. We got to ask ourselves, is, do we see any of these characteristics in our own lives at times? And I think, you know, sometimes we can see this. We can see that we can have these same examples sometimes. We can deal with lust. We can deal with jealousy. We can de- deal with selfishness. But again, we need to repent of that and turn from that and turn to Jesus. So let's turn to verse 12 through 13. Going through a lot of scriptures, a whole book today. When these people eat with you in your fellowship meals, commemorating the Lord's love, they are like dangerous reefs that can shipwreck you. They are like shameless shepherds who care only for themselves. They are like clouds blowing over the land without giving any rain. They are like trees in the autumn that are doubtfully dead, for they bear no fruit and been pulled up by the roots. Now, as you look at this, let's see, uh, verse 13 also. They are like wild waves of the sea, churning up the foam of their shameful deeds. They are like wandering stars, doomed forever to the blackest darkness. Now, in the early church, it was tradition to have a meal with your fellowship time at church. And we still kind of practice that somewhat today sometimes. But you would have a time of fellowship, and you would be fed both physically and spiritually. And so these false teachers he's talking about here, they're sitting at their tables. They're sitting among them, eating with them, participating even in the Lord's Supper. We're going to take that today. And they had these people, they had no hesitation or no fear of the Lord. They had no remorse of their sins. So he compares them in these different ways. Do you see all the different ways? There's all these comparisons to a dangerous reef. So this, I'm going to go through this quickly, but just think of that. A dangerous reef, it's a hidden danger sitting disguised, ready to destroy whatever comes that way. 
right? That's what a reef is like. Then you see he compares them to shameless shepherds only serving themselves. You also compare it to rainless clouds. That's just good-for-nothing clouds not bringing any life-giving water. Uh, he continues in his description calling them unfruitful dead trees. This is something that only takes and doesn't produce. Another description, wild waves of the sea, churning waters. That's having no rest or moving about every which way with no direction or purpose, really. The last description is wandering stars. There's a different interpretation of this, but they say it's like a comet, a big show. This is what some interpreters say. It's like a comet, right? A big show, but it's useless for any navigation or to focus upon. And then once it's gone, there's nothing there. So it's a wandering star. So let's continue in verses 14 through 15. Enoch, who lived in the seventh generation after Adam, prophesied about these people. He said, listen, the Lord is coming with countless thousands of holy ones to execute judgment on the people of the world. He will convict every person of all the ungodly things they have done for all the insults the ungodly sinners have spoken against them. Now, it's interesting, this book of Enoch, it's spoken about here. It's actually not in our canon of Bible. It's kind of interesting because it's mentioned here. Um, so as we look at these verses, I mean, there's several times in the Bible where it references some resources that we may be lost or don't have or not in our canon. But it doesn't mean they're still there. And, you know, it doesn't mean they're not truthful either, but they didn't make it into the, what we'd call our canon or our Bible. And so this is one of them instances, so it's very interesting. There's several things mentioned in Jude that you won't find other places in the Bible. And it talks about Michael and fighting over the, There's lots of things. It's pretty interesting. He had some real insight. Um, but we see these verses are a warning to the false teachers. It's a warning. It's a warning to us not to fall into the false teachings. And to remember, as you see here, remember, there is a day that all will be accountable. And so we have to be very wise of this and always keep that in back of our minds as we uh, hear these different things. Look at verse 16. These people are grumblers and complainers, living only to satisfy their own desires. They brag loudly about themselves, and they flatter others to get what they want. This is an example of a false teacher, something to look out for, a way to discern who they are. A description here you can see also, this is sins that all of us should avoid. We're just going to continue right through through verse 17 through 19. Thank you, Salvi. But you, my dearest friends, must remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus predicted. They told you that in the last times there would be scoffers whose purpose in life is to satisfy their ungodly desires. These people are the ones who are creating divisions among you. They follow their natural instincts because they do not have God's spirit in them. Now, we really shouldn't be surprised. We see, we've heard about it, to know about these false teaching, these false uh, preachers, this false doctrine. There's people out there that are trying to tear down the church, tear down other Christians. But we should not only be not surprised by it, but really we see it here and we see it in lots of other teachings that we should be expecting them and expecting as they come that we should be prepared by knowing God's word. So speaking of that, let's look at verses 20 through 21 and learn what we should should be doing. But you, dear friends, so now he's talking to all of us, right? Must build each other up in, in your most holy faith. Pray in the power of the Holy Spirit and await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will bring you eternal life. 
In this way, you will keep yourself safe in God's love. We are mentioned here in this scripture. This is written to us. Um, we're reminded, again, of these false teachers and their presence in our own fa- It could be within our own families, within our own church. But we also see right here in these few verses what we are called to do. We, as a body, are to come together and we're to support and lift each other up. We're supposed to lift each other up in faith, right? When all of us, this happens to all of us, our faith can be wavering at times. We know what it says, but sometimes, you know, we face hard times and we can lose our way a little bit. And we as fellow brothers and sisters need to be in fellowship with each other. And, you know, it's like, if anyone ever needs anything, come up and ask. This is what we are supposed to do as brothers and sisters in Christ. We're supposed to lift one another. We're supposed to be in continual prayer and be encouraged knowing our place and that Jesus is, we have our resurrection in Jesus. So as we look at this, this rebuke and what we should do, we need to have the correct perspective. And we need to remember that God has everything in his control and also remember, very important, that we belong to him when we see this. So as his children, we know our place is in heaven with him. And that we know that everything that we face here and walk through here is only temporary. Now, as we continue, the last few verses, verses 24 through oh, 25, is a prayer. And we're going to do that after communion. Let's look at verse 22. And you must show mercy to whose faith is worthy. Rescue others from snatching them from the flames of judgment. Show mercy still to others, but do so with great caution, hating the sins that contaminate their lives. As we look at this, I was thinking this warning to us about these false teachings. And there's many other false teachings besides the one that Jude is specifically speaking of here. There's many, many false teachings out there. But I was thinking last week's sermon, how we are to love God. Remember that? And I was talking about how we're supposed to love with our complete being, with our body, soul, and mind. And I was thinking what that looks like. You know, I was going to share it last week, and then I, I was wondering, like, I was thinking Adonai Judson. You know? What an example of what it was, his love for the Myanmar people, of what it was to love the Myanmar people with all that he was. And you think about that, and you think of the disciples. You think about Jesus. So Jesus gave his very life for us, right? We think of all the disciples. All but one gave their lives, and the other one stayed, went to prison. You think, I was thinking, Adam Johnson, how many wives did he lose? How many children did he lose to stay here in Myanmar to share the gospel? That was amazing. I mean, you think about how much love he had to follow that purpose that God had laid on his life, to love the Myanmar people. I mean, he went through beatings, he went through jail, he went through, I mean, all sorts of stuff here in Burma. And I think about that, and I see today's, and the love that we are supposed to have for God's people, and I, then I see this warning from Jude about the false teachers, and this exhortation to stand in one's faith. And this is so important, and sometimes it's so difficult. I know I just faced a very difficult situation. I was in the hospital almost four weeks. And, you know, I, I tell you, some questions do come up I, when you face something like that. You know, you definitely assess your life, that's for sure. Um, you wonder, like, what would happen to my kids if I didn't make it through this? Or what happened to my wife? Or what would happen with this or that? And, you know, my concerns really, I think anyone would 
have the same feelings. It's usually not for yourself when you're in that position. You're more worried about your family. And then as I walk through that, I've seen that, you know, it's, the struggles I had within it were nothing compared to Vicky's. It was much harder for Vicky to sit there and watch that than for me to lay there. And, you know, God has just blessed me so abundantly um, with this fellowship, with all the people that came around my family. And you guys really, talking about standing for the faith, that's what you guys did when you guys came around my family. When you went to my house and you stayed at my house, when, when you greeted at the door, when you come up here and prayed, and I know that people, certain people that came up here and prayed, like, they're not comfortable doing it. It's not their, what they feel comfortable doing. When they went to my house and brought my children food, when the list is too long to go through, it really is. But that truly is standing in faith, standing in the principles of who we are as Christians, to come around each other and show that love of Christ that others looking in would see. They would see that. Others that don't know Jesus would see the love of Christ through you guys. And you guys portrayed that in my family when I was gone. And I just wanted to thank you. And we're going to take communion. And I just, as we take this, I would pray that we would not only think about last week's message, but also think about what it is for you to stand in your faith. Not, I mean, we need to stand against false teachings and be warned that there are false teachers out there. But there's more than that for all of us. And I think there's certain things each of us can struggle with within Christianity. I mean, if it's standing up for what we're looking at or doing in, on our phones or for whatever it is, um, let's examine that and see what it is for us to stand in faith, not only against false teaching, but in our own walk as Christians. Because I think it's, it's, it's difficult sometimes. It's difficult to stand strong as a Christian sometimes when those around you and these false teachers around you would continue to try to knock you down and ridicule you as it talks about here in this chapter, in this book. So I believe if everyone has, does everyone have the juice and the cracker? So please, we're going to pray and we're going to partake. Communion is a time that we as Christians can take to first look back and remember God's promises, to remember what he's done for each and every one of us, to remember the fact that he did come to this world to live as a man, to be sacrificed on the cross, to pay the price for each one of our sins, past, present, and future. And then to be, after paying that price for each one of us, then to be resurrected. And, and we also then can join in that resurrection by becoming followers of Jesus. So we look back and look at them promises. That's one of the things we're to look at as we take communion, to remember who Jesus is, what he did, then who we are each in Jesus, to truly be understand that resurrection and to understand that we are redeemed. As we talk about false teachings and whatnot, to remember, you know, so, so many people just, they can't get a hold of the grasp of the fact that we are redeemed. You are no longer a slave to sin and to walk and live that life out. Anyone that says any different, that is a false teaching because we are free from sin if Jesus, if the Holy Spirit is indeed living in us. So to walk in that, so as we take communion, we acknowledge that. We acknowledge what Christ has done for each one of us, and that's one of the things we do in taking communion. And then another part of communion is just taking the time, just taking a moment to examine our lives today, to take a moment and see, is there any false teachings in our lives? Is there anything that we are not grasping in inside of God's promises or living according to God's will? We're, is there sin in our lives? Or maybe if there's not sin in their lives, maybe we're really not standing strong in our faith. Maybe we're not out there truly showing who Christ is in our lives. Maybe we say we're Christians, but people see us 
and they don't know who we really are because we're not standing strong in our faith. And so we, we look at ourselves, we examine ourselves, we examine our walk with Christ, we examine our relationships with others. We look and see how is our relationship with our wives, with our husbands, with our children, with our co-workers, with our families. We examine that, and we put that on the altar when we take communion. And we examine ourselves, is there any sin in our life? If you have a sin that you are not repented of, you should not be taking communion. I will say that. But if you, if you do, repent now between you and the Lord. And this is the time that you examine yourselves. And, you know, each one of us can look in our lives and see and different things that we struggle with, if it's sin or relationships with others or people, or maybe it's something in God's Word. You know, I, I, I don't know why this has been coming up a lot lately, but people ask me questions, and I just say, well, what's the Bible say, right? And, the, you know, they know what it says. And then I say, so you know what it says here, right? Like, yes. I said, so whether you agree with it or like it or not, do you choose to obey God's word? It doesn't mean we always like it. And sometimes we, I read some of this, I'm like, wow, that's harsh, or I don't want to do that. But we subject ourselves to Jesus as his servants, just as Jude has done here, as a slave, as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And this is the time, as we take communion, that you can reflect that and pray and ask the Lord, is my life truly subject to you? Am I living a life, as Jude would say, is I'm a slave to you? Because a lot of things get in the way. Lots of things in this world get in the way so quickly and so easily. Communion also is more than that. It continues. This is the time that we can joyfully look to the promises that Jesus has given each one of us. I mean, we have the promise of eternal life, right? We know this. It's a guarantee. If we have accepted Jesus, this is a guaranteed thing. We can look at the promise of our salvation is guaranteed. You're not going to lose your salvation, all right? I don't care if you are a truly repented, born-again believer, you're not going to lose your salvation. You can look at that promise and you can rest in that and that grace and that mercy that comes with that. Again, not permission to sin, but you can rest in that guarantee of where you will spend eternity in the loving arms of Jesus. And then we look at the promise that we have in knowing what's going to happen to our loved ones. And we can look at the promise knowing that God is always there for us and that he wants that love and that mercy and grace abounding in our lives. And we can thank him for all the things he's given us from this fellowship to the birth of Jesus, to our families, to all the things. So communion is a time that I would ask that you would just take. And if you want to say something as we take communion, if you want to say something out loud, that's okay. If you want to just say something you're thankful for, or maybe even something you need to repent of, that's appropriate. Or maybe you just want to say, you know, I thank you for the promise, a certain promise that's on your heart. Share with us as we take communion. Share with others and help others stand strong in their faith also. So as we pray, I would like to just take a few minutes that you would have between you and God. And during that time, please, if you have a word that you feel that to share with us, please share that just right from your seat where you're at. You can stand, you can sit, whatever you'd like. But please share that with us. And I think it's important that we share with one another what God is doing in our lives. And if we have something we're struggling with or we have a praise or to share, share with others. So please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just take this time to obey your commands. We take this time as we've read in your scriptures and your, in the Bible, Lord, that we are to take communion or some call it the Lord's Supper. It's an observance of what you've done for each one of us, Lord, reminding that your body was broken and your blood was shed. And we take this time just to take these physical elements and remember all these things, Lord. So, Lord, I just pray, Lord, for myself and everyone here, Lord, that we would just take time to observe this, Lord, and reflect and remember on all that you've done for us, Lord, and to remember who we are in you, Lord, and to look and examine our lives today, Lord. And, Lord, is there anything in my life, Lord, that needs to change? Is there anything that I am not doing that's not according to your will? Is there anything, Lord, that 
It's not pleasing to you. Is there a part of my life that you would look upon and you would not smile upon? Is there something that I would try to hide from you or from others, Lord? Let me be repentive of that and bring it before you, Lord. And just turn to you, Lord. Lord, we surrender our lives to you just as your half-brother here, Jude, has done, Lord. Just We're here. We're at the altar. Surrender to you at the cross, Lord. Bowing down, saying, here I am. Recognizing and acknowledging what you've done for us, Lord. Loving us so much to give your very life. To have our sins put upon you. The perfect sacrifice. So, Lord... We love you so much, and we thank you for the promises that you've given us, Lord. That promise of where we will spend our eternity in your loving arms. That promise, that redemption, that, Lord, no matter what we have done, Lord, if we have turned to you, Lord, you've paid for that already. Knowing, knowing how this is all going to work out and who's in control of everything. So, Lord, I just pray that we'll just take a few minutes of silence, Lord, that each one of us would just come before you, Lord. Just take this time, Lord, to be quiet, but also, Lord, just to talk with you.